Consequences, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This week, I'm going to have two co-hostesses with me. I'm so glad to have my good friend and colleague, Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association as co-host today. And we are going to talk to Ashley about a really interesting piece she wrote for the Wall Street Journal about her own daughter's experience with mask wearing during summer camp, something um, a lot of parents are, are struggling with this summer in the in the intense heats of summer. And we're, as the new school year quickly approaches, the new journal research released last month about wearing masks for children and how, how that has its own inherent risks. So that'll be really interesting. First, I'm going to have my other co-hostess, uh, Lee Sneed. She's also my colleague at the Catholic Association, and we are going to welcome Noelle Maring to the show. She's with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She works side-by-side with Carrie Gress, who was on the show recently, on the Theology of the Home Project. Noelle has also written a best-selling book called Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. This is a really timely um, look at the problem that so many of us are confronting on different parts of our lives and the, the different ways we interact in the public square. And she approaches it from the Christian perspective, which I think is very important for us to understand. But first, with the news out of Cuba becoming more and more dire as the poor demonstrators have been chased back into their homes, so many of them assaulted by the paramilitary police, many of them disappeared, many of them savagely brutalized. We don't really know exactly what's going on because the because of the embargo of the internet that the Cuban government has put on the entire island. They've shut it down. We're getting little bits and pieces, little videos from the island, and it's all very concerning. One thing that we have learned through all this time is a lot of things about things that are happening here in the United States. For instance, uh, people are giving themselves away in a sense and uh, showing that what they care about is ideology and not human beings, not actual human concerns, as often they like to say. So some Democrat politicians like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who has been quick to repeat the talking points of the regime in Cuba, uh, blame things on an embargo that never actually stopped any kind of medication, humanitarian aid, or nutritional supplies going into Cuba, the U.S. embargo. On the contrary, the country, if you have the dollars to, to pay for it, um, and Cuban people don't have dollars, you can go to the dollar stores and, and the shelves are full. But these are for tourists, these are for friends of the regime. If you want good health care, there are hospitals and clinics for the communist elite. There are hospitals and clinics for tourists and friends of the regime. 
but not for the regular Cuban people. So we're learning a lot of this stuff and, and we're watching people support the regime out of a love or a liking of, of leftist causes, of, of socialism, out of a kind of romantic idealization of, of people like the Castros and Che Guevara, which, you know, that kind of romanticism and idealization has resulted in decades of oppression and tyranny and just grief, grief for countless, countless people. One thing that was pointed out to me by a niece of mine, and I and I started to pay attention and it was true, is that the organization Black Lives Matter has come out and supported strongly the Cuban regime. And they've pinned all the blame on the U.S. embargo. I, I asked my niece to come on the show for a couple of minutes and tell me Tell me why, how are people, are, how are people reacting to this news, young millennials, Cuban-Americans, for instance, on, on Instagram and Snapchat and the other ways that they communicate. So my niece, her name is Stephanie. She's on the phone. Stephanie, tell me about that. What's going on on the internet? Hi. Basically, from what I've seen on my platform, on my page, is just a lot of shock, but just a lot of shock overall and like sadness, especially people that, you know, are Cuban and they supported Black Lives Matter religiously. They're really saddened by the fact that it's come, it was so blatantly expressed recently. I think it's a good wake up call in order to like teach people to actually do your research before you advocate for a group. Like, yes, the meaning may be good. And yes, it's good to support the Black community. But I think in terms of an organization standpoint and giving an organization that much power and that much hold over society is something that people should tread lightly with, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. And Stephanie, people who were paying attention knew that there was a Marxist um, under underpinning to all of the Black Lives yeah. Matter movement. But a lot of people were not paying attention, and they are shocked. Uh, is, if that's true, I feel that they must—they must be shocked when they see when they see videos of of, yeah. of police, of paramilitary force, savagely beating peaceful demonstrators, and then the exact organization that was supporting, crying out so loudly against American policemen yeah. who are overall wonderful people and follow the law and protect us. They didn't have that same sympathy when it came to a communist regime. My belief is that people don't like looking at the facts, if that makes sense. So if it benefits them, they'll go for it. If it doesn't benefit them, and it goes against what they believe, then they don't go for it. And I think a lot of the issue is mainly stems from the fact that the media hit it. They were pushing a certain narrative. Thank you, Stephanie, for giving us your opinion, your young opinion, your fresh opinion. Well, we offer our prayers today for our dear brothers and sisters in Cuba. Please join us in praying to Our Lady of Charity. And now we are happy to have my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Lee Sneed, to introduce Noelle Maring to the show. Welcome to the show, Noelle. Great to be here. Noelle, we're very excited to talk with you about your new book. I think it's uh, extremely timely, and um, both Lee and I have a lot of questions to ask you about it and your perspective on this very important topic. But first of all, you've been you recently joined the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I wanted to congratulate you on that. And, and I was wondering what you hope to accomplish there and how you see that opening up career paths for you. 
Yeah, so it was like just a real thrill and honor to be invited to join the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And what we're doing there, the plan is that my co-author for the Theology of Home books, Carrie Gress and I, are co-directing what we're calling the Theology of Home Project. So Ryan Anderson, the new president at Ethics, is very committed to defending the family and the, this, the integrity of the home, not only in policy, but also in practice. So for the, with the theology under the umbrella of the Theology of Home Project, project will be fleshing out that second level of how putting forth you know a beautiful positive vision of family life because for so many decades we've been bombarded with this real like programming to think of family life as being something negative something repressive um, and something you know rather bleak and so really countering that narrative in a in a in a way that's kind of on offense i think is is the goal of our project there Noel, I find that this is it's such an important project because one of the problems I believe in in the fact that in the fact that the home is not being uh, appreciated the way it should be is I think many of us have lost the culture of home. We don't know how to create a beautiful, peaceful, cheerful, joyful home, and so we don't know what we're missing and we don't know what to aim for. Do you, does, is the theology of the home trying to get us to that place? Yeah, I mean, what, what we're really trying to do is it's it's somehow too, but it really really more deeply is the why. Why is the home uh, a worthwhile and really integral place for all human beings? You know, and, the, and it's rather than, I think Wendell Berry is the writer who says that we've, the modern approach to home is as if it's a filling station, you know, a gas station. We just stop mm, in and yeah. get what we need rather than a place where we can be, really abide and and nurture the rela- our relationships. Um, and I think we've so twisted our understanding to start thinking that the, our public life is more important than our, than our private life. And it really is just the reverse that you know, all of our public life springs from uh, in it and is grounded by a healthy, happy, and whole um, foundation that begins at home and continues throughout our lives and the families that from our origin, but also the families that we build um, and, the, and the generation that comes from that, you know, that, that it's generative, you know, it's a, a very fruitful um, uh, concept that, you know, and, and, and reality that we are actually creating culture through building um, a be- beautiful home lives. Noel, we've been really excited about you being on the show. Your recent book, Awake Not Woke, is such an important read for these times. We're all, um, you know, I think everyone is, you know, thinking about race right now and um, equality and what that looks like and what it looks like in a Christian perspective and a Catholic perspective. But woke ideology is maybe not that. And you talk about it. It's such a reality and it's pervading all facets of American life. You say in your book, quote, this book is an attempt to name what is poisoning us. Can you, can you break down the woke movement for us in terms of how it's fracturing society? Sure. I mean, I, I think that was really the, re- the purpose of the book is that I really want to understand the woke movement, understand its internal logic, and also um, help bring clarity because it seems like it operates so much on Christian precepts. And so I think that makes it really confusing because we, we think, oh, well, we're supposed to walk with the marginalized you know, of course, we're against racism. You know, all, we right. want equality. Um, so, but is this the way to do it? And it and it really seemed obvious to me, and and more and more um, clear as I was watching it explode in the culture that this was extremely divisive. Um, and so, you know, the 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 main thing I found was that it's fracturing us on multiple levels. I think it's fracturing us by um, pitting us against each other, most obviously, you know, dividing us into oppressor or oppressed. 
um, but also fracturing us from ourselves. So I think that there's an enormous amount of bifurcation happening to the human person because we're not allowed to understand our, like, uh, we don't have a moral architecture of meaning in our lives. So, you know, the, especially particularly most obviously through the sexual revolution, you know, we, we are, we are created, there are wounds and pathologies being established because we've divorced our, our the meaning of our bodies of um, uh, any bodily meaning at all. Um, and, and so that, you know, the, undergirding that is a type of nihilism that only leads us to, to despair. Um, but people are being wounded by this, wounded by this ideology for, in, in, in this way, and they don't know how to name it. They, they feel shame, they feel guilt, they feel, you know, hopelessness. Um, and there's no, there's no vocabulary to name it um, that they're provided by through this movement. Um, and so it makes you angry. It makes you rage. It makes you um, feel helpless. And um, and and I think that's the deeper division happening. Is this div- division even from who we are as human beings? I think it's uh, people with children who feel those most more than other people. The p- those feelings of rage and those feelings of inability to un- un- really understand what's facing us and how to protect our children from it or how to explain it to our children. And that's been my experience talking to people. You know, older people whose children are all grown they say oh no that's just a fad it'll pass but it's the younger people with children who are really feeling scared is has that been your experience noel uh, well i see i see actually both I, I i see what you're saying but i also see a lot of parents with adult children whose whose kids have become woke and they don't know how mm, to talk true. to them about it and there's a lot of hard conversations happening or the parents seem old-fashioned to the kids and they're dismissed as not being with the times and and that's a certain very painful type of um, experience as well. Uh, but certainly with the young kids, I mean, I think we're seeing that all over, right? Especially with school boards right now, that parents are really uh, becoming alert to what's happening and 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 recoiling against it, you know? And and I think there's a particular um, ac- acuity and acuteness in, to the way in which it's being kind of escalated in schools that is alarming. And so to that, to that degree, I think that you are, you know, your point is spot on, that there is an alarm of people, of school-age children that I don't think we've seen in the past and you know there's a hopefulness to that that maybe with this new clarity and awareness that we can actually you know really have the courage uh, and conviction to resist what's happening one thing i've seen in in my my husband's family actually and other other families that i know is that families who are uh, already of mixed race um mm-hmm that that this is actually affecting them even worse because they are being told that even within these family bonds that they are different from each other have have you experienced that noel i i know we have in our family yeah i'm i'm actually from a mixed race family my mom's an asian immigrant my father's caucasian but um uh, yeah, you know, I race, so race was always kind of at the, you know, a presence in our lives. Um, and I, but one of the things I'm hearing more from mixed race families also is, or in addition to what you're speaking to is, um, kids who are from mixed race families, this one family yeah. from school, um, that he was half Hispanic, half white. And, uh, and he, and he was, he was from a working class family at a very, at a more prestigious school, you know, on, on financial aid. And, and he came home from school with these privileging class lessons, uh, lessons in his privilege. And he, it turned out that he was more on the side of the oppressor to his black classmates, some of whom live in multi-million dollar homes, you know, <laughs> it was enormously confusing for him. Um, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. And I'd be curious to hear what your experience has been, um, just with with in a mix, for a mixed race family, what 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 is it that you've been seeing? Well, in one case, my I have a, a sister in law who's black, 
and um, she was adopted, and she has become very angry at her adopted family because of a lot of this. She's she's absorbed a lot of this racial animus, and 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 has said that they that her you know her white family hasn't understood her. Um, she's getting over it, and that's wonderful. And and um, we all we love her very much, and and we we've it's been very very painful for the family. Yeah. To have yeah. to to have to uh, manage that because you know it's a family of love and it's very difficult to be told um, you haven't been able to love me properly which is what I think we're being told right like oh you're I'm this color so you can't love me properly you can't accept me uh, and that's very challenging and then my own natal family I'm Hispanic and we come in all the colors of the rainbow so for us uh, all these all these gradations of race make no sense at all so from the Hispanic perspective we look at it and and we're we're puzzled tremendously puzzled you know we're being told that that we're we're oppressed but then some of us have the same families or are lighter than others and then we're being told we're the we're the oppressors it doesn't make, it makes no sense for us well, it's incredibly reductive and such an unnuanced perspective, isn't it? You know, I mean, it reminds me, I remember when AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, kept disparaged St. Damien Molokai statue in the rotunda. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and and it was, yeah. It, imagine it, knowing anything about the life of St. Damien Molokai, his bravery, courage, immense, <laughs> immense love and sacrifice to reduce him to his skin color and, and his genitalia. It's just it's so stupid, you know, fundamentally stupid. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences, and we are talking to Noel about her book on woke ideology and how to be awake and not woke. Noelle, we were just talking about, you know, a couple different ways in which we all sort of feel like scrambled eggs in our brains now because we don't have a vocabulary to talk about what's happening. We don't understand. You talk about the assault on and the rejection of reason. Um, and I think it was your National Catholic Register piece where you said what reasonable people know to be grotesque. Um, and it really reminded me of a phrase, I think it was Leon Cass in his medical ethics writings. He writes about the wisdom of repugnance, how you don't mm -hmm. have to explain why, ped why pedophilia or incest is wrong. You just know. Um, so I don't know. Did you, were you thinking that kind of way? Like it's, it's stepping outside of reality and coming back at it or tell me about how you picture this assault on reason. Yeah, well, and that particular um, anecdote, it's, I think it's really, one of the things I love about the faith is that it's, you know, when you read St. Thomas or you, you know, you learn about the moral teachings or natural law, it really resonates because it's deeply embedded into the whole architecture of the universe, right? Into our bodies, into, you know, into the, the spiritual physics of, you know, um, of life and the moral, and the moral life. Um, and I think kids really have this innate sense of fairness. So I think I was referring in that um, in that anecdote to uh, a, a, they had brought a, a Catholic school had brought a DEI trainer in to talk to the students. And one of the students had asked him, yes. what do you think about the phrase ACAB? All cops are bastards. And he he justified the phrase by saying that it's used to it's not a personal attack on cops. It's actually meant to just point to the anger and the injustice that black people have experienced. Well, you know, I think that all kids, you know, the, the innate sense of fairness that kids have has to be reprogrammed. All kids know that, you know, the behavior, you know, that there should not be a double standard, you know, and that um, uh, that if it's wrong for one group, it's wrong for the other group. And to if for a principle to be universal, it has to apply universally, you know. Um, these are things right. that we intuit. Um, and to, to really, and the ideology really has to, re-educate us, you know, in a contrived way to, to, to break that out of us, right? And so it's sort of an abuse to, 
um, our understanding of reason and our into in our intuitions into the into moral law that we are all are all born with. Um, but it also assaults reason and, and you know assaults reason fundamentally by rejecting natural law. But it also assaults reason through critical theory, which replaces critical thinking. You know, critical thinking is oriented towards the truth, and critical theory is oriented towards power. And so for the critical thinker, you invite objections, you invite deb- debate. For the critical theorist, you you don't invite them, rather you have to suppress them. And it leads to a lot of coercion, a lot of force, and eventually tyranny. Well, thank you so much for that uh, helpful explanation. Could you do the same thing uh, with the rejection of reverence? Yeah, so rejection of reverence, that's based on uh, my third dogma in the book. I, I have three three of them. One, the first one's rejection, rejection of um of the person for the, in favor of the group. The second is rejection of reason in favor of um, reason and and, uh, and nature in favor of human will. And the third one is rejection of authority uh, for the sake of power. And so, um, you know, I think that's a fundamental characterization of the woke is that there's nothing to reverence. There's no law above us. There's no measure for behavior. There's ultimately fundamentally no God and there's no hierarchy. You know, this is why I think they rail so much against the patriarchy um, because there is, you know, there can be no sort of... Um, hierarchical structure to society that, you know, the church, God, uh, reverence for our country, um, you know, and there, there's nothing to revere because anything to revere implies that there's a standard outside of ourselves. Um, and, and that standard has to be eradicated if we're going to have complete sexual freedom and also if we're going to have um, uh, a society that's built on restru- reframing or restructuring, reversing power structures. Uh, so, yeah, and you yeah. see this at all, you know, anytime the Marxist regimes implemented, you know, from Mao to Pol Pot to the woke movement now. Okay, so at the end of your explanation of the rejection of reverence, uh, Noel, you mentioned anytime things like this, whether they are sexual nature or whatever, and I've been thinking lately about this weird conflation between between racial equality and some of these gender issues and LGBTQ things. And it just seems, I don't know, for me, it seems it, it does also a disservice to anyone examining, you know, their own feelings about race. And so do you see like what, where, where is that connection coming from? Is it, is it, what's the end game here? Do you think it's, do you think the end game has something to do with that? I mean, I guess that's the whole Marxist agenda um, is to break down the family. Um, But anyway, could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, one of the fascinating things that I think is happening with the way that we talk about race and the way we talk about the genders in the woke movement, when not we, you know, but we more broadly, um, is that, you know, the difference between the genders is really being eradicated, right? We're supposed to, everything's fluid. We're eliminating any distinctions between male and female. Whereas for races, we're doing the exact opposite. We want to highlight, we want to emphasize, and we want to put at the forefront our racial differences. And why? I think that it's, it's the exact opposite of what should be happening. Because if you think about the difference between man and women, women implies a difference in behavior, right? Um, you, you can't, be, yeah. be with your male friends the way you could be with your female friends. Um, you know, if you're married, for example, or you know, there's propriety there, um, and and also there's a even within marriage that you know the the not in a really role or um, action based way necessarily, but there is a different way in which male and female express the love of God that I think is important and part of our very nature. So there's, but and, and keeping those differences and keeping those distinctions in appropriate ways helps 
men and women live in harmony with each other. It helps us be friends. It helps us be better husbands and wives. It helps us be a more proper and appropriate and healthy society. Whereas with the races, uh, the, the, the road to friendship between the races is really by eliminating, or not eliminating totally, but by, you know, relegating the racial distinctions into something that's more or less, you know, a non-factor. You know, friendship, that was Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, right? Is that we could be blacks and black children and white children, run around, be playing, be friends, not thinking about the, the racial differences. That's the road of friendship. We see that even without the races. You know, my friend Susan, who maybe when I first meet her, I think she's this super beautiful, intimidating woman. Well, once you become friends, you just she's just Susan. I'm just Noel. You know, where you know you you forget about these kind of more superficial things. Um, but in both instances, between the races and the sexes, the woke movement chooses the road to creating broader groups of enemies across both racial and, mm. um, and sexual um, distinctions. The road of enemies is by highlighting the difference between races, and the road of enemies for men and women is by eliminating them. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. I never thought of it that way. That's exactly right, because you're right. They're running. It's like two trains going in opposite directions. Although, I'm starting to see some merging. I saw recently on online about a person who decided they were Korean I think it was some sort of Asian and mm. they had the surgery and they had surgery on their eyes and on their features and they and they said that they they should now be considered Asian it was a Caucasian saying they were Asian um, and I thought wow you know we're coming full circle transracial I yeah I, I don't know if the woke movement can really accept that though I mean when white women have uh, you know said that they were black identified as black that was very taboo and unacceptable to the woke but Noel that was that was months and months ago so the whole world has <laughs> changed since then <laughs> that's right progress and you know that's one of the problems we're having right I mean things are changing so fast I mean we're the three of us are talking here about woke ideology I know a lot of people that don't know what the word woke means and we're we're using it as though um, it's it's just a, a normal term that's been around forever it's really not been around very long no yeah yeah but anyway our listeners should definitely pick up your book especially since a lot of our listeners are people of faith catholics christians and uh, this book does go to the heart of the matter and and i, I believe it's very important because many of us um, who have that that natural repugnance to the theories of critical race theory, like to critical race theory, to the gender ideology, to, you know, the whole alphabet thing. And we feel that, uh, you know, we understand that it's wrong, but sometimes understanding why it's wrong from a Christian perspective um, helps us very much so that we can communicate and, um, and really sort of deepen our philosophical understanding of what's going on around us. Yeah, and also so wrong from a, from a personal perspective. You know, it's harming people. There's, you know, I mean, it's really. I really want to write the book out of love for persons. You know, that mm-hmm. this is really destructive for human beings, all human beings across the board. Well, thank you, Noel, for joining thank us. You, where can our Where can our uh, listeners uh, find your book called "Awake Not Woke: A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology"? We sell it at our shop on theologyofhome.com. It's also at our publisher, tanbooks.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major booksellers. Well, wonderful. I wish you much success, and uh, perhaps you'll join us again to talk about all these fascinating issues. Great to be with you, ladies. Thanks so much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. 
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm so glad to have my good friend and colleague, Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association as co-host today. And we are going to talk to Ashley about a really interesting piece she wrote for the Wall Street Journal about her own daughter's experience with mask wearing during summer camp. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Gracie. It's great to be with you. So what drove you to write this uh, great piece at the Wall- in the Wall Street Journal? I think like any parent, I had my enough is enough moment. And, you know, when it comes to masking kids, I think all of us, when the pandemic started, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know, you know, those of us who aren't in the medical profession didn't know really anything about mask wearing. We put masks on our kids to protect them, to protect others. But now we're 16, 17 months into the pandemic and we have abundant research that shows A, that kids are not at risk of getting seriously ill from COVID, and B, that they're not drivers of spread, and really C, that masking children doesn't do anything to mitigate spread. You know, what drove me to write my Wall Street Journal article was my daughter came home from tennis camp a couple weeks ago. It was the hottest day of the year. It was 98 degrees that day, super humid, and she looked sick when I picked her up. And when she got in the car, she told me that she was required to keep her mask on for the entire time that she was playing tennis outside for three hours. And then the camp actually called and complained that she was pulling down her mask and asked if she could, you know, be better about wearing her mask. And I just thought, this is crazy. We're not following science and it's unfair to children and it's unhealthy and frankly, quite dangerous, in my opinion, too. You make a point in your piece that this is children as victims of COVID political theater. What do you mean by political theater? Well, I mean, we all know that there's been this big debate about masks in, you know, in the duration of the pandemic and whether or not they do anything with Fauci coming out and being it being revealed in his emails that, you know, store-bought masks don't contain the virus. And, and my point is, and not just that, but just the broader debates about the lockdown and quarantining and, you know, the Sweden approach or, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And my point is, okay, fine, those debates are fine, but can we please remove the children from those debates? And I think a more salient example of that would be what happened with schools and the way that the teachers unions capitalized on those debates to keep schools closed for uh, millions of America's kids throughout the entire year. Yeah, that was a very shameful uh, spectacle, Uh, especially as uh, parents like you and I, Ashley, and many of our listeners had already for many months our children in parochial schools and other religious schools that are that don't have the kind of money or resources that public schools have, but were able to conduct classes successfully in person, even though they had to um, struggle to, to meet the requirements that, that, that we felt were necessary. Uh, but they did it. You know, and I'm so proud of my own little parochial school. I'm so proud of the way that they met all the sudden requirements that were given to them by the archdiocese because the archdiocese wanted to reopen the schools. This is uh, almost a year ago. And they they succeeded, but it was a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of dedication on the side of the teachers and the administration to make it happen. Uh, yes, unfortunately, the children were masked <laughs> and had to stay, you know, six feet apart. And then their little, their little uh, pods and everyone was really careful. But if a little parochial school can manage it, you know, a giant school system with the kind of resources that they have should manage it better, not worse. 
Right. If there's anything that we've learned from this year, um, or or that this year really highlighted, it was the the incredible courage and bravery of Catholic teachers showed uh, the commitment to actually educating children. Um, these teachers went to work in many cases. You know, my kids' school similar to yours every day when there was no vaccine, and again when when it was less clear how this virus was being spread. You had an interesting experience where one of your children wore a mask all year and another one didn't. My kids like yours at the parochial school, they were masked and that was something that parents were willing to do, a sacrifice we were willing to make in order for our kids to be able to go to school. But, you know, I had an interesting experience because I had two kids that were at school every day wearing a mask, including outdoors at recess. Um, So wearing a mask for eight plus hours a day. And then I had one kid that was at a school um, with no mask. And both of those schools had the exact same number of COVID cases, which was zero. In my article, I talk about the extensive studies that have been done now, both here and in Europe, on children children in school, both masked and unmasked, that found basically absolutely no correlation with masking kids and the mitigation of COVID. And again, also clearly found that children are not the drivers of spread of coronavirus. So, you know, we're entering a completely different school year in the fall. For starters, any teacher who wants to be vaccinated has had that opportunity. And secondly, we have this mountain of research showing that A, not only children don't spread the virus, B, masking children is basically irrelevant to COVID outcomes. And C, a a growing body of evidence that finds that masks may actually be risky and harmful to children. What makes a mask a bad thing? A, A study just came out. Um, that found, I sort of laughed when I I saw it because I thought, I mean, don't we all already know this, which is that children, study children wearing masks and found that they took in higher rates of carbon dioxide. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of obvious to parents that children are having a hard time breathing when they're wearing a mask. That can be correlated to all kinds of other problems, including like hyperventilation, higher levels of stress and anxiety. Another group of parents sent their kids masks to a lab just to see, hey, what's on the these gross pieces of cloth that my kid is wearing for eight hours a day and found that they were covered in all kinds of pathogens that were far riskier to kids than coronavirus. Pathogens that cause things like meningitis, strep, pneumonia. And then there's just a whole kind of separate debate and discussion about the psychological harms and risks of masking, especially young children when developmentally they take in so much of their sort of social cues from the facial expressions of of others around them. That's been a particular concern to me. Uh, My youngest daughter is starting high school now in September. As you know, having been um, a a middle school girl at some point like me, these are very interesting times for young people when they are becoming young adults, they're becoming teenagers and learning to navigate the world and social interactions. Thinking back to myself and my middle school years, my early teenage years, how difficult life was anyway to try and understand myself as a social person of of a new age, especially by missing the smiles. A smile is a is a connector that connects human hearts. And imagine just removing that smile. I've thought of this before when considering the way in some Muslim cultures, women have to mask their faces. I mean, what a terrible thing to have that human connectedness just erased by a piece of cloth. 
Well, and, you know, my sister, who has three young daughters, told me that she pulled her, I believe the girl at the time was four, is now five, out of her preschool because they started to require masks. And the girl came home and said that she she was in tears and said, nobody can hear me. And then said that she had tried to make a new friend on the playground. And the other girl couldn't understand her, couldn't hear her. And it was just very sort of upsetting and disorienting to her. And that's just sort of, you know, again, it's the experience of moms like us is this just this collection of these kinds of stories and concerns about what what is the effect of this on kids But again, just to bring it back a step, you know, we have the science and the data now to show that we don't need to be like experimenting with our kids like this and that our kids don't need to be pawns in these bigger discussions and debates about all of this. We have the science, we have the data. It's clear that we don't need to be masking children in order to protect them and to protect others. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie from the Catholic Association, and I'm talking with my co-hostess and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. She wrote a great piece this week in the Wall Street Journal on on the injustice of keeping our children uh, with dirty pieces of cloth in front of their faces. You know, another thing when we were talking about the the social interaction, I was thinking of children that already don't socially interact very well. Autistic children, mm-hmm. children on the spectrum. Imagine the the lag, the terrible lag in their the development they could have had over these months, over this this year or two, if they'd had if they had been able to have those social interactions with their peers. Yeah, and you know, again, I would say that you know, just it's not like this is a you know that we're that we're talking about something new here. This is at the on the heels of a year of unprecedented isolation, and those kids, kids with special needs, were overwhelmingly disproportionately impacted by what the teachers' unions did, which was close down schools for millions of Americans, American kids. For example, in the area where I live, the schools didn't open um, until. I want to say like April. So those kids, those special needs kids were completely kept away from the resources that they need. And they were the ones who struggled with using computers and screens. And so, you know, you're absolutely right that not only are we talking about putting, you know, face pieces on them, um, which bears all kinds of sensory issues, but they've also been kept away from school and the resources that they need and their peers for more than a year already. So why continue to do this? But, you know, the teachers unions, they are, I believe, either they just voted or they're planning to vote to say that they won't come back to school in the fall unless every child is masked, every child is vaccinated, and all the children are kept, you know, however many feet apart. And, you know, what does that mean for kids? who are under 12 who can't get the vaccine? Are the teachers going to do what they did last year and keep schools shut um, if the kids aren't vaccinated? Ashley, I don't know what's going on in inner city schools. Maybe you can, maybe you know, children that are already behind in, in the fact that they don't have uh, the culture at home to help them study and, and, and get what they need. On top of that, they are prisoners in school
schools that are in turn imprisoned to the teachers' unions with these unions who seem completely dedicated only to what they what they imagine is their own good. Because, you know, truly, I think that teachers are much happier going to school <laughs> and seeing the students. I mean, teachers became teachers because that's their calling. They want to educate. They want to be with students. So I, I, I imagine that many, many teachers across the United States are very angry at the teachers' unions and the way that they are, com- you know, complicating their return to the classroom where they can be with the children and really teach. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I certainly, I understand why teachers would have been very fearful this last year and can can see how absolutely that this would be incredibly frustrating because now if you're a teacher who was afraid, you have the vaccine and, you know, it, it shows you the real clout that the teachers unions have over the schools um, and have over politics. That That's what I meant by the pandemic political theater it's like can we please stop using children especially vulnerable children like special needs kids low-income kids as political footballs for interest groups that just don't care about them and are exploiting this crisis to make political statements or advance their own agenda that is not in any way aligned with that of kids you know one of the things we're seeing i think in this in this discussion about masks and schools and children the effect on children is that we have Entered. And, and again, I think for pol- somewhat for political reasons, because of the media wanting to capitalize on panic, I think we've entered into, and many of us have entered into a space where we, we are willing, we are unwilling to accept any kind of risk associated with COVID, but we're willing to accept all sorts of other risks when, when it comes to other things like our children's health and our uh, emotional health their, and their physical health. Do you think that there is a, a lot of that going on? Yeah, in fact, somebody said it to me really well the other day or put it really well. They said, we've become risk averse to the point of causing risk, mm-hmm. um, especially with kids. Like we're so risk averse with regard with regards to kids that we're actually putting their health at risk their psychological health their physical health again masks are intended to be worn in a very particular way if you're in the healthcare profession you know they're they're only effective when they're handled in a very particular way and the idea that kids can do that is 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 really laughable and then again i would sort of take a step back and say to any of the adults like when have you as an adult had to wear a mask for eight hours, even Mm -hmm. for one day, you know, even people who are in say the service industry, you know, increasingly I'm seeing that, um, you know, people who work in restaurants are less and less having to wear their masks. So, you know, those may be some examples of professions, maybe the airline industry where where they've had to wear them for extended periods of time, but they get breaks. But what the teachers unions are wanting kids to do in the fall is something that really only healthcare professionals do, and they've been trained to do it, um, which is wear a mask for eight plus hours a day with no break. And I'm sorry, but healthcare workers aren't outside running around, kicking a soccer ball or or in the case of my daughter, playing three hours of tennis in 98 degree heat. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And there is a whole protocol when one as a doctor or nurse uh, masks, there is a whole protocol around it because you would never do the things that I see constantly. You know, people wearing their mask, pulling their mask away from their face to rub their nose <laughs> to put it, right. and you put it back. And I mean, it doesn't, it's not actually working as a preventer of any kind of transmission. And not to mention the fact that we don't actually wear masks that are even built to prevent transmission of of certain sizes of particles. If you really wanted to use a mask properly, it would be basically unusable, in a sense, for an entire population. So yeah, from a medical perspective, it it, it does seem 
uh, to be theater. It's a kind of theater, the mask wearing. And it's interesting how the mask wearing has become associated with political parties and, and political leanings. Someone told me, I think it was one of my children the other day, one of my older children said, yeah. when you go there, you have to wear a mask or else they'll think you're a Republican. Yeah, and I've seen people say that they wear a mask because they don't want to be, you know, viewed as a supporter of this, that, or the other candidate. Um, And again, it's like, what? why subject children to that? I mean, what kids have been through this year with schools being, there's no precedent for it, really. I mean, the isolation, schools being closed. My argument, again, is because we have, we're at we're, we're more than a year into this pandemic. We have abundant science and research. Can we please liberate the kids, at least the children from all of this, and let them try to start building back healthy, normal lives? Well, that's a great note to end on, Ashley. Thank you for joining me today to talk about uh, masks, our children, about risk, and what we're willing to accept for them. And please, uh, to all our listeners, check out her story in the Wall Street Journal about her daughter, Stella, uh, wearing a mask in 98-degree heat at her tennis camp. <laughs> it's a ter- sort of a sad story. I'm glad that. And you know, what can other people do, Ashley, before we say goodbye? What can parents do? Not everybody can write, write a piece for the Wall Street Journal. It's actually a question I'm asking myself because you know, I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal and then the next day Dr. Fauci came out and said kids should absolutely be wearing masks if they're not vaccinated. So I think parents should educate themselves about the science that's out there. And I I have a lot of it in my article. And then I think they should band together and just respectfully request that their administrators and that their public officials respect the science when it comes to kids in masks. That's Ashley McGuire. Check her out at the Wall Street Journal. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when he will lead us on a multi-week journey more deeply into the mystery of his life-giving love in the Holy Eucharist. The Church has been focusing this year, as we do every third year, on the Gospel of St. Mark, If we continue chapter by chapter in the progression we've been undergoing these last few weeks, we would have tackled this week St. Mark's version of the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish, the only miracle of Jesus recounted in all four Gospels. But the Church substitutes for us here St. John's account of the same miracle, because St. John shows how Jesus used that miracle as a launching pad for a long homily on the Eucharist, which will occupy our thoughts for the next five weeks. The miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish was a true miracle, something that happened in Capernaum during the time of the Passover, one year exactly before the Last Supper. But Jesus used this miracle as a sign of what he was intending to do for us in the Holy Eucharist. For the next several weeks, we will focus on what Jesus focuses on. But today, let's begin with what the miracle of the multiplication of loaves means. The miracle of the loaves and fish teaches us very clearly about how God generally works and what he expects from us. When Jesus saw the famished crowds, he easily could have worked a miracle from scratch. He who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, who fed the Israelites in the desert with miraculous manner and quails from heaven, could have easily satiated the hungry multitude ex nihilo. He didn't need human or material assistance. But that isn't the way that he acted. Out of a double compassion, first for the crowds and then for all of us who are meant to look at the crowds with the same compassion, he asked his disciples what their resources were. Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat, he asked. 
St. Philip replied that not even six months' wages, let's just say $20,000 by today's standards, would have been enough to feed the crowd of 5,000 adults. The only one who had anything was a young boy who had five loaves and two fish, which wouldn't be enough even to feed a typical family. The Lord started, however, with the young boy's generosity. Even though, strictly speaking, he didn't need anything to work the miracle. He wanted to involve the boy. He wanted to involve the apostles. He wanted to involve the crowd in the miracle. He wanted to start with what the people had and bring it to completion. This is the way God generally operates with us. He could choose to do everything by himself, but he knows that ultimately wouldn't be good for us. Just like a parent often gives a child a project and then helps the child to complete it, so God out of love wants to give us the joy and dignity of being cooperators with him in what he's doing for us and for others. Look at the wonderful story of the apostles. Jesus wanted to involve these simple men in the most important mission ever, the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the salvation of the human race. Rather than ascending into heaven, he could have chosen to stay here on earth until the end of time, traversing every land, preaching in every town and village, healing, exercising, forgiving, and establishing the church. But he wanted them and us to share in this mission. He gave us his message and his authority. The apostles weren't necessarily talented men in worldly eyes. They weren't those who had multiple starting materials. They were sinners like us. They were capable of saying yes to God, offering to him their goodwill and the talents he had given them, and allowing the Lord to multiply those offerings by his divine power. God wants the same from us. Regardless of how many gifts and blessings he's given us, he wants us to give them back to him so that he can do far greater things with them. We might have only received a minimal education in the faith through religious education, but the Lord can use this to make us apostles just like he did with the ill-educated St. Peter. We might not be very gifted, for example, as a teacher, but with the Lord, we might become the best of teachers to our children about what's most important of all. We might not be much in the way of material possession, but when we offer them to the Lord, he might use them to help save others' lives in this world and in the next. We might be very advanced in years or ill and think that we don't have much still to give. But offered to the Lord, these can be incredibly fruitful. This lesson has a very concrete application in what the church is celebrating this Sunday for the first time. The World Day of Grandparents and the Elderly, which Pope Francis has instituted to be celebrated every year from this point forward on the fourth Sunday of July a date chosen transparently to connect it as closely as possible to the July 26th feast of St. Joachim and Anne, the parents of Mary and the grandparents of Jesus. In his message in anticipation of this inaugural celebration, Pope Francis, an 84-year-old himself, asked grandparents and fellow seniors, what is our vocation today at our age? And he answered, it's to preserve our roots, it's to pass on the faith to the young, it's to care for the little ones. While parents, grandparents, and seniors may not be as physically vigorous as they once were later in life, they still have, he implied, five loaves and two fish to offer to God for the spiritual feeding of the crowd. And he was not only summoning seniors to this work, but leading the whole world in appreciation for what grandparents and seniors still have to give and do give. Just like the Lord never ever goes into retirement, he stated. There's no retirement age from the work of proclaiming the gospel and handing down traditions to your grandchildren. 
Since he was elected the successor of St. Peter at age 76, he hasn't slowed down in trying to live and teach the faith, even when he was recently in the hospital. Every day, even being wheeled in a wheelchair, he would go and visit the other sick people, using whatever opportunities he had for however little time he had energy to try to spread the faith. Citing the biblical figures of Abraham, Moses, Tobit, Eleazar, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, and Nicodemus, all, who, all of whose major contributions to salvation history took place when they were advanced in years, the Holy Father urged grandparents and seniors to see themselves as still very important laborers in the Lord's vineyard, beginning with the very precious resource, he said, of their prayer in the example of love for the Lord and the gift of time, which they can richly invest with their grandchildren, teaching them, praying with them, playing with them, giving them encouragement and unconditional love, listening to their stories, attending their games, concerts, and academic milestones, and in so doing, helping their children and in-laws to grow in their maturation as parents too. The world is so much better because of the way so many grandparents and seniors live out their vocation. And this first World Day of Grandparents is an opportunity to celebrate them, thank them, come to spend time with them, recommit to the covenant of love with them, and pray for them. The Eucharist is the reality to which the multiplication of loaves and fish points. In the Eucharist, Jesus again takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it once more in a multiplication that's even more miraculous, stretching across the centuries in every land from the upper room to the altar of our parish churches. This is the sacrifice that has fed billions of God's children and prepared them for the heavenly banquet. And in the very way Jesus established it, he shows how we wanted our intimate involvement. We use not grain and grapes but bread and wine, the work of human hands, because God intended from the beginning our own contribution in this one great sacrifice to the Father. When the priest prays during the beautiful dialogue at the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist, pray, brothers and sisters, that this sacrifice, yours and mine, may be made acceptable to God the Almighty Father. We focus on the reality that the Eucharist is not just the offering of Christ, but together with him the offering of the whole mystical body, the Church. And there's one other detail from that miracle we shouldn't miss because it likewise applies to the celebration of the Eucharist. Clearly Jesus could have worked the miracle without leaving one crumb of leftovers. But he worked it to overflowing, leaving 12 wicker baskets full of extra food. We could say he was leaving one basket for each apostle to remind each of them and us through them of what we're supposed to do with the Eucharistic food we've received not only to continue to live off of it, but to share that food with others. Rather than keeping the miracle of the multiplication to ourselves, Jesus wants us to pay it forward, filling our baskets to overflowing so that we might lavishly share his gifts with others, offering with his giving our bodies, our blood, our calluses, our sweat, our tears, our joys, however many loaves and fish we have, out of similar love for God and others. As we prepare to share in this great and ongoing miracle on Sunday, let us ask Jesus to give us the courage and generosity to offer our whole lives to him in his service so that he, in feeding us, may be able to use us and all he's given to us to feed others. Praise be Jesus Christ. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 